Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. It's good to be with you this morning. My wife, Jana, and myself are very thankful and blessed to be invited here by your ministry team. That's the second time I've seen pastor take his shoes and socks off and eat that detestable cheese. I can almost smell it. And I've got another chance to see it again at the 11 o'clock service. <laughs> we welcome also the Molly Sites at Blackberry Creek with us this morning. And also uh, there is Ducarb and Sherwood. Bartlett? Streamwood Bartlett. Streamwood Bartlett, DeCarb, and Blackberry Creek, joining us here at St. Charles. Welcome to those congregations. Good to have you with us this morning. My late wife and I had a blessed marriage for 30 years. We lived in Australia for a number of years worked in a church, moved to Pasadena, California, studied there for eight years and then four years with our two daughters coming into Wheaton, teaching at the grad school. Nearly 30 years of marriage and it was a blessed marriage. And then my late wife, one Friday, went for a regular checkup and returned with devastating words. I have cancer. and they want to operate immediately. What, what do you do when as a Christian you're living in a peace and joy and the blessing of God and then your world begins to unravel? You hit the wall. You face a desperate, challenging situation. You face a crisis. What do you do? You're doing a road trip through the book of Acts. And I think this morning's scripture helps us, Acts 4, verse 23 to 37, in a moment. I want you to follow verse by verse through the scripture using your Bible and all the slides, Acts 4, 23 to 31. I, I think it's a plan, it's a model of what we should do when we face problems of life. So the early church, Acts 1 to 3, Continuing the work, the teaching and miracles of Jesus, the early church, the 123,000 at Pentecost, 4,000 Acts 3 after the healing of the lame man at the gate, beautiful. After three years of joy and peace and miracles and God's blessing, they hit a crisis. And they are faced with threats and imprisonment from the Sanhedrin Council. And that's where Acts 4.23 kicks in. What did they do? And what they did flies in the face of a heretical lie that is crippling the church all throughout the world right now, including this nation. In Asia, Africa, Latin America, there is a lie being perpetrated. And millions of people are being sucked into the lie. And they're following Jesus. And the lie is, if you're in Christ 
You'll never face difficulty. You'll never face challenge. You'll never face perplexity. You'll never face persecution. It's all smooth roses and tulips and carrying fluffy white lambs through your life. That is a lie. How does the lie perpetrate? It is because people take the scriptures out of context, plucking a verse here, plucking a verse there, bleeding and screaming out of the context in which it was originally put. I'm impressed with this church because you are Christ-centered, Bible-centered, God-centered. I'm impressed that you're bringing Bibles to church. Hard copy as well as electronic. I don't often see that. I started off this morning with my late wife's story because it's related to the early church. They handled it. They coped with it by prayer. And I believe it's a model of how you handle challenges and sufferings of life. Life is full of challenges. I see in Luke, Acts, one book, two parts, same author, same audience, 50 times through Luke, Acts is a repeated theme of prayer. Every important event in Jesus' life was saturated in prayer. Every important event in the early church was saturated in prayer. There's a theological message that we should pray, and often we don't. So let me say it clearly in one sentence. When we face life's challenges, what should we do? The early church gives us an example. We should pray, built on, founded on who God is, his character. And then the requests from who God is, his attributes, the requests are that in the challenge, in the crisis, in the situation, we should be a witness for Jesus on earth through spoken word and our behavior, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's where we're heading this morning. Let's go to verse 23. Let me read it to you and then we'll go piece by piece. I have a Bible up here that's 28 point font, new, Amer uh, new NIV 2011. It's not black cover, but it is the Bible. So I'm just gonna go verse by verse and share with you this morning. How did they handle the problem? I believe it's a model, a pattern for us to do today. Individually, family, but also corporately in all your churches from Blackberry Creek to Streamwood Bartlett, to Decarb. Verse 23, Acts 4, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people from the Sanhedrin Council, the most powerful civil, social, and religious body in the whole of Mediterranean Judaism, threatened them never to talk about Jesus again, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Not an individual approach, but a community approach. Looking at your bulletins, looking at your website, listening. Two impressions. You see these communities, multi-site here at St. Charles, you feel you belong to family. I've heard that even this morning a number of times. I'm impressed by the longevity I've been here 34 years, I've been here 30 years. And then the young and old all feel a belonging to this community. The other thing I'm impressed with, I see prayer meetings, pre prayer gatherings, a men's prayer group. 
different prayer groups throughout the church and the multi-sites. I'm impressed with the desire to seek God in prayer, in community. And then in verse 24, after lifting up their voices together in prayer because of the crisis, they prayed in verse 24, the first of the three attributes of God. God is the creator. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So their requests are built on the attributes, the character of God. I think this is amazing. In this pressured situation, the beginning of a multitude, a multiplicity of crisis after crisis after crisis in the early church. This was the first of many in the early church, internal, external. What did they do? I, I set, they set a pattern to pray. What did they do? What did they find, found their prayer on? The character of God. They quoted the first words in prayer. They quoted Exodus 20, verse 11. This is a quote. In the NIV, you don't see it clearly. In the New American Standard Bible, it is in large capital letters when in the New Testament they quote from the Hebrew Scriptures. Sometimes you read in the New Testament, you don't realize that the author to the first audience is quoting from the Scriptures, the only Scriptures anointed, divine inspired at that time, the First Testament, the Old Testament. This is a quote from Exodus 20, 11. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's a part of the Fourth Commandment, a part of keeping the Sabbath, which you are doing today. And it's drawing from Genesis 1. It's covenantal. It's built into the covenant. When they are speaking and praying and quoting the Old Testament, it's just not a verse here and a verse there. It's the whole package in which the verse lies is what they feeling, believing, theologically understanding. When they quote Exodus 20, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. They are covenantal thinking in their mind. And it is this, we belong to God. I am your God. You are my people. That's the summary of covenant. What are they saying? This is their problem. But they attack it. They approach their problem in prayer in perspective. That God is this big and their problem is this big. He's the creator of all the universes, all the heavens, all earth. And we're a part, a small part, of the magnitude, the magnificent of God the Creator. And we belong to Him. The first stone they establish in prayer. The second stone, you found in verse 25. They, they quote again. In verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David, our father. Why do the nations rage? They're quoting from Psalm 2 verse 1. Before we continue, Psalm 2 verse 1 is embedded in a messianic psalm. Psalm 2 talks about the coronation of Jesus. It's a prophetic psalm. It's a prophetic song to be sung. David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, sitting perhaps before the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God between the cherubim above the mercy seat. 
feels the pressure of the nations around him, Moab, Ammon, Egypt, and he reflects on the raging of the nations. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon David and he writes this prophetic psalm and he's 1000 BC and the Holy Spirit illuminates and opens his eyes that he sees 1000 years into the future. And he sees what's going to happen to the Messiah who will bring peace, righteousness and justice to his people. He sees the cross. He sees the death of Jesus. This is Psalm 2. And he sees the resurrection and Jesus seated at the right hand of God and God saying to him in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The whole psalm is in their theological thinking. And in Psalm 2 verse 1, they acknowledge in verse 25, why do the nations rage? The Gentiles and the peoples, Israel, plot in vain. The kings of the earth, Herod, rise up and the rulers, Pontius Pilate, band together against the Lord, God the Father, and against his anointed one. You heard Pastor Clayton talking about that as a messianic title. Anointed, Hebrew Messiah, Christ Greek. God is the God of time. God is the God of creation. And then in the verse 27, with that in mind that he is the creator, Exodus 20, and we're in covenant with him in their theological thinking as they're praying and seeking God rather than retaliating and rushing and doing whatever in their human mind and wisdom wanted to do. They submit and yield in prayer and give it to God and they draw on the covenant knowledge of God. And they realize in verse 27, indeed, that he is the God of creation, the God of time, and also the God of history. In verse 27, indeed, Herod, the rulers of the earth, they correlate the psalm, the prophetic psalm, the vision a thousand years into the future, with the actual history that they are living through right now. It's suddenly my, my God, we're living through the history that was prophesied through the Holy Spirit, through David. We are living it right now. They're aware of it and they pray it. You see the correlation in verse 27? Indeed, this is a prayer. They're praying it. It's recorded. And it's recorded for a reason. I said to you, there are 50 prayers through Luke-Acts. In the book of Acts, there's only three recorded prayers. Stephen and his death martyrdom, the selection of the replacement of Judas the traitor, and this prayer. This prayer is very important. It, it begins at the beginning of the expansion of the early church. It's there for a reason that we should also do it as a model. Indeed, Herod, kings of the earth, Pontius Pilate, rulers, met together with the Gentiles, nations raging, and the people, my goodness, it's happening. The rulers, the, the, the Herod, the king, Israel, in this city, conspired Jerusalem against your holy servant Messiah, Jesus, who brings salvation to us, whom is your anointed one. My goodness, we're in it now. And then in verse 25, excuse me, 28, this little section, and they did 
what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. It was no surprise. It was the pre-ordained plan of God. It was no surprise to God the Father that he gave his only begotten son to die for us, that through belief and faith, confessing him as Lord, that we will become his children in personal, intimate relationship. It was not a surprise that Herod and Pontius Pilate became friends together in the conspiracy. built on the three attributes of God. Who God is, they reach out to the character of God through the tension and stress of the situation. Many of you are living in stressful situations and tensions, and it's challenging. What do you do? My wife Jane and I have a blended family. We have five children, adult children, two in Portland and three in Wheaton area. And in April we have uh, had an addition of three grandchildren in April that made nine grandchildren, six years and under, all in Wheaton area. So when we gather together, it's quite joyful. Or noisy, whatever. Uh, they're wonderful children, very well behaved, and we are very thankful for God's blessing. But our third daughter, who now is in her late 20s, for seven years, from her teens through to her early 20s, had, had a difficult time. Brought up in a Christian home where parents and father and grandfather, church planters that go back to the early 20th century, she decided to move away from Christ, away from God, and got involved with a very sad group of people, tragic, broken people, and become, became involved with a young man that we heard of. I don't think we'd ever met him. So my wife and youngest daughter, we were doing a road trip, and I had a dream during the night so we pray regularly for our children. We're praying for our third daughter, knowing that she was involved with people that really were not godly in their behavior. And I had a dream, very vivid dream. And I walked down the stairs to where my wife and daughter were having breakfast. And they were talking about a dream that my wife had had. And as she was sharing the dream from her night, it was exactly the same as my dream. And it was seeing our third daughter pregnant with a baby. And we had only heard about the man. She wasn't married. It was just a rumor that she was involved. But when we came back home and met her, the first words out of her mouth were, I am pregnant. And it wasn't a surprise. I have right now standing here in my imagination a, a, a memory of what I saw in that dream and it is exactly, this little girl in the dream is exactly looking like our, the eldest little girl of our third daughter. And it was a seven year journey with our daughter. 
And it was a very difficult journey where she cut herself off from God, she cut herself off from family, and she went her own way. And it was tragic. I don't know how, we lost count of how many times the police came to our house. We lost track of how many times we had to go to court and appear before judges concerning custody of the children because the marriage that eventually happened with this incredibly sad, abusive man ended quickly in divorce and then they had to fight over custody of the children. It was a tragic seven years for all the family. Everybody was involved because of one decision and especially our daughter. Then there was a turnaround, a 180, where she came back to God through our prayers, through her sharing, through us embracing her, bringing her into the family, looking after her and her two children. And there was a 180. And the hand of God, the mercy of God, poured into her life. Like we were, we were taken back by the mercy of God. And she met a, a very fine man years later, a Christian man from Naperville area with a Christian heritage, Christian family, Christian grandparents, a home. And the blessing of God that rests upon her life right now is awe-inspiring. But there were seven years of famine and seven years of God you are the creator of the earth you are creator of time you are creator of history you know this situation we uh, bend our knee and submit to you then after the building of the prayer we're in the prayer now they then request Three things based on who God is. And we see in verse 29, Now, NIV, Lord, consider their threats. Verse 29, part A for Apple. There was no vengeance. There's no getting back at the Sanhedrin council. It is this bending of knee and submitting and allowing God to be the judge. And it's simply them saying, okay, this situation we can't handle. It's beyond us. It's, we don't have any control of what's happening to our daughter anymore. We give it to you. Let you be the judge. 1 Peter 2.23 is one of my life verses that I practice often multiple times. And it is this, a book of suffering. How do you handle suffering? It's in Peter, 1 Peter. They are a persecuted Christian group up in northern Turkey. How do you handle suffering in the Christian life? And Peter writes as to Jesus being the example. Jesus on the cross. Follow the example of Jesus in his humanity. How did he handle suffering on the cross? Verse 23, 1 Peter 2. He didn't revile in return. When he was hit, he didn't hit back. When he was spat upon, he didn't spit back. But he kept on entrusting himself in prayer. Kept on entrusting himself to the righteous judge. On the cross, Jesus prayed the death prayers. What was he doing in praying out of the Psalms, the death prayers? Allowing God to be the judge of the situation, the anger, the hatred of the Romans, the Gentiles, the Jewish leaders, even Colossians 3 says the demons. He gave it to God for God to judge. I want to say, that example is for us today. 
that example is for us also to follow Jesus' example of what to do in situations of distress. Allow God to be the judge. In prayer, give it over to him. Keep on entrusting. Continuous tense. Keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on. Give it to God. Let him be the judge. And then they prayed in verse 29, the second part. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They then began to pray, allowing God to be the judge, for them to continue the work of Jesus. The book of Acts, the history of the early church, is the continuance of Jesus' teaching and miracles. In Acts 1, 1, 1 and 2, Luke says, Theophilus, remember the first volume, Gospel of Luke, I, I told you all that Jesus began to teach and do until the ascension. Now... I'm going to share with you the continuance of Jesus' teaching and doing through the empowerment of the early church. So when they are praying here, this is a prayer model for us. They're praying, let's also continue the work of Jesus. Let's pray for boldness and freedom of speech, that we may speak and witness to the resurrected Lord, not only with words, but also with our behavior. Now, I, again, I want to say, we're talking about the early church. We're talking about Peter, James, John, the apostles. If they have to pray, if they feel motivated by the Holy Spirit to pray for a freedom of speech, to continue the teaching of Jesus, how much more should we? How much more should we? Be praying that. Pray that. I'm an introvert. I know that may sound a little funny. If I had a choice right now, I'd be in a cabin in the mountains by myself, my wife coming occasionally, by myself, <laughs> just quiet, just go quiet. I like quiet, I like quiet, silence, solitude. I grew up in a family. I was the only child, really. My brothers and sisters had gone to college and out of the house before I realised I had a family. And my father spoke five words a year. Very economical in his speech. <laughs> I like quiet. So I'm here pontificating only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Truly. And, and accumulated experience and education. But I'm here really as a very shy introvert. If the Holy Spirit can use me in my story to speak about Jesus with my accent, he can use you. And then the other prayer continuing. In verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They wanted manifestations of the power of God. Just not speech. The gospel is Jesus went from village to village preaching the kingdom of God. Proclamation, preaching, sharing, talking, speaking. But also healing the sick and casting out demons. There was an action. There was a social activist justice compassion action. All woven together in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not separated. Not one against the other, but both operating together, word and deed. And you see it here in the prayer. So 
my late wife to illustrate these pleas, these requests. She had a challenging time for seven months. Every day was discomfort. She was a radical converted Christian from 19, 18 years of age in Australia. Spanish background, born outside Madrid in Spain. And she loved Jesus. But every day for seven months, eight weeks in hospital, three major operations. It was a, a distressing time. But yet there was a buoyancy, that was her word, a buoyancy of prayer. People all over the world were praying. And she felt uplifted in prayer in the midst of discomfort. How do you bring those two paradoxes together? I will never forget her having her third operation, Rush Memorial Hospital downtown Chicago. And I'm on the fifth floor, waiting for her to be wheeled back from surgery. And she had trouble in CDH, you know, DuPage Hospital, in pain management. Nothing seemed to work. And I had forewarned them, and the medical records supposedly had gone forward to make sure that they could manage the pain. Looking out the window, fifth floor, Friday afternoon, it was a car park, looking down at the traffic on the 290. And it was a thunderstorm, 4.30 in the afternoon. It drenched the roads, it flooded the roads, and there was no movement. Everybody was stuck on the 290, looking out the window. When my late wife came in, wheeled in, uh, the epidural didn't work, she was in immense pain. And I thought, oh, they, they haven't passed the records on. And the nurses were running around trying to cope and they, they couldn't handle it, they were new nurses. Within three minutes, into the room comes our next door neighbor from Wheaton. She is, at that time, in her mid-70s, been a missionary with a husband in the Belgium Congo, when it was the Belgium Congo for 15 years, and had been a nurse in the emergency section at DuPage for over 20 years, an emergency nurse. And she walked in three minutes after she brought in Dolores in, in suffering, and she took over straight away and gave directions, told everybody who she was and gave directions to the nurses, and quickly the pain was being managed. And afterwards I said to Ruth, how, why are you here? I, mean, I was thinking, how did you get here? Through all the traffic and the storm and you're over you know, 70 and you shouldn't be driving. I, I didn't say that. <laughs> and she simply said one sentence, and that's all she said. God told me to be here. Now there's a sign and a wonder. There is God in our prayer, in the buoyancy of prayer, revealing a sign and a wonder. A sign is pointing. You don't stop at the sign and say, oh, what a wonderful sign. This is the best sign to St. Charles that I've ever seen. There are many signs, but this is the best sign. It's pointing to a location. Signs are pointing to Jesus. And wonders are, oh my goodness, this is, oh, wow. A wonder makes you stop and think, this is God 
pointing to Jesus. So when we talk about the three attributes of God and their three requests of you judge, give us the continuance of Jesus' ministry through speech and word. It's pointing to Jesus. And then the results, the three results, it happened. As they prayed, it happened. And it happened, you'll see here, if I can refer to verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. The first thing is they fill with the Holy Spirit. You can't do this without the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you as a follower of Jesus, you have to have the Holy Spirit to be a follower of Jesus. Paul says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not of Christ. How do you get the Holy Spirit? Ask, open your life, confess Jesus as Lord, see him risen from the dead, believe it, embrace it, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And it is only the Holy Spirit that enables us to live the Christian life. It's not divorcing God, a deism two million miles away. It is God in us, God in us. At Blackberry Creek, at DeKalb, at Streamwood Bartlett, is God in the community manifesting himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the church. And we can't do it without the help of the Holy Spirit because we are weak, we are full of sin and foibles, and we have crooked sticks. And we need the Holy Spirit. And you see, after they filled the Holy Spirit, they spoke the word of God boldly. And then from verse 32 right through to 36, the result was church unity. A unison. As I read verse 32, and all the believers were one in heart and mind. And all the believers, in answer to their prayer in the midst of the crisis, a prayer, a model for us today, all the believers were one in heart and mind. There's the summary statement for what is going to happen next. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, both in speech and in word, just not one or the other. And God's grace was so powerfully at work within the Christ community church because they see your love for each other and they see your kneeling, surrendering attitude of prayer. And that there was no one needy persons among them. And I see this community activity and your engagement in the community at Blackberry Creek. I see it in your faces and on your advertising on your website. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money for the sale, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everybody in need. And Joseph... Levite from Cyprus was an example of a man that sold his land and gave it for accommodation and food that the church in Jerusalem may still exist and continue and prosper. And the contrast in fire with Ananias and Sapphira. So what are we talking about? We're talking about life has challenges. Maybe crisis is not the word, but the church is full here in the early church of crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis. Prayer after prayer after prayer, all mingled with the blessing of God, people coming into the church, people being healed, people being delivered, expansion into areas of the Mediterranean, Roman, cultural world. But yet, 
difficulties along the way, not extracted from their lives. How do we handle those difficulties? Relationships, pressures of money, employment, lack of vocational call, purpose. All of us, to some degree or another, whether you're 10, 9, 7, 6 years of age, being bullied at school, struggling with mathematics, don't like your teacher, haven't got any friends at college, distracted by things that you shouldn't be distracted by in early adolescence or in mature age, whatever the issues are, what should we do? What's the model? I think it's here. Realize who your God is, that you belong to him, creator of creation, time, history, and we should give it to God to judge and then call out for his help to continue the work and be a model and be an example with the Holy Spirit's help of speech and word in our community. So the last few moments of my late wife's life, she went into a coma. We had many discussions through those seven months. Tension, paradoxical between believing for divine healing, the miraculous intervention of God, which I believe in, and also believing in the ultimate divine healing of eternal life where there's no more suffering or tears. And that tension, that paradoxical tension, we spoke about a lot. At one time I said, are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of death? And she got quiet and then she became very bold and she said, have you forgotten? That's the first sentence she said. I said, what do you mean? You were there when I got filled with the Holy Spirit when she was 19. Now she's 49. And at that time, when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, she said, God took away any fear of death that I might have. I got a taste of heaven when I got filled with the Holy Spirit. And I know her family, and her family are riddled with paranoia and fear of death. It's a part of their culture. And she said, all that was taken away in an instant. And I got filled with the Holy Spirit. Boldness of speech connected to the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then she went into a coma for a week. Heavy breathing and then silence, heavy breathing. And I went out into another room. And the day she died, 6.30 in the morning, I woke up. And the first thing that came through my mind was the hymn from the Chicago businessman. He wrote a hymn in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean where his family were drowned in a shipwreck. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. I know the hymn. And it came into my mind as soon as I woke up, 6.30 in the morning. And then the next thing it was an image, a vision. I'm not sure, but an image. And I saw Dolores running left to right, 20 foot away, long calico dress, hair out, no glasses. And I remember her saying, when I go to heaven, I'm not going to have glasses. <laughs> and she was running, running from left to right into the arms of Jesus into the loving arms of Jesus. This is all while I was lying in the bed. And I got up, went into her room where she was in a coma and I touched her arm. She had stopped breathing. But her arm was still warm. 
She had just moved soul spirit from this life to be in the presence and the loving arms of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we yield and bow our hearts to you. At Streamwood Bartlett, included in this prayer, Blackberry Creek, the Carb, and St. Charles, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit this morning and allow us to continue the work of Jesus in boldness and signs and wonders that would be performed through your Son, the Holy One. Amen.